0: But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, we're um, continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount this morning. And and really this week we get to a, a major transition in... Um, that sermon because let me just remind you up to this point Jesus started off by teaching us first of all uh, who it is that the citizens of his kingdom um, really are and he said that by their very nature um, those who become his children will exhibit a character of life that really he talked about in the Beatitudes. Uh, In other words those who are children of God will see themselves as poor in spirit rather than needing um, a spiritual boost. Uh, They will be people who mourn over their sin instead of trying to justify or defend their actions. Uh, They will be meek instead of uh, boastful and competitive. They they will have a hunger and thirst for righteousness instead of toying around with the alternatives that the world has to offer. Uh, He says they will be merciful instead of being uh, harsh and impatient and, and judgmental. Uh, They will be pure at heart and not just when people are are looking. Uh, They will be peacemakers rather than trying to win at the expense of somebody else. In fact, he says they will even be glad uh, for enduring this persecution, uh, for living this way, rather than expecting God to bring them the good life of heaven on earth, which is how we often act. And having laid out this character in these opening verses, he goes on to tell us how it is that we are to exhibit this behavior and he says it's not by withdrawing from the world into our safe Christian ghettos nor is it by militantly attacking uh, the world and trying to win and conquer it for Jesus but rather he says it's by being salt and light that having both a preserving effect upon the world keeping it from um, further and faster decay than it would otherwise have as well as being a light that can guide people out of their darkness. But you see, today now Jesus begins to make the transition into the section telling us how we're supposed to do this. And it's a section that really runs on for a couple of chapters. It's a lengthy one. And essentially what Jesus says here is that the way to go about this is by living a life of righteousness, a deep righteousness. But before he gets into all the details of what this righteous life is, is going to look like, uh, he starts with two basic principles that lie beneath this new life that he's talking about before he gets into those specifics. And that's what I want us to hone in on together here this morning. And and the two main principles that Jesus lays out that kind of undergirds everything he says about the law are this. He says, first of all, everything that he's about to tell you is in full and complete agreement with everything that the Old Testament has taught. But then secondly, that everything that he's about to tell us is in full and utter disagreement with everything that the religious leaders, the Pharisees, taught. And those are two assumptions that we need to spend some time looking at. And so before we get into the details of how Jesus describes righteous living, let's take a look at these two principles and see what we can learn from them. And and listen, it's very common these days to hear people saying, Um, You know, I really love Jesus, I love the teachings of Jesus, I love all the things in the Bible that Jesus uh, talks about, but I just don't like the theology of the church or of the Apostle Paul. I don't like all this emphasis on sin and repentance and holiness, I just want to hear about the love of Jesus and the forgiveness of Jesus and, you know, can't we just all get along? You know, that's what Jesus' message was all about. But look at this, Jesus clearly talks about both holiness and forgiveness. For Jesus, it's not either or, it's both. And, and so I think this explains a little bit of the background for the way Jesus' life played out and why it was that he faced such incredible opposition from the religious leaders of the day. Because, I mean, think about this, the entire Jewish system was based on highly trained priests who came from all the right schools, They had been brought up within that system as they worked their way to the top. And and here's Jesus quickly becoming the most popular teacher out there, and yet he didn't go to any of their schools, and he didn't have any credentials. And so they despised him. But even more than the system itself, Jesus didn't spend all of his time merely expounding the law, though he did that, as the Pharisees did, but he also talked about mercy and grace and forgiveness. But even worse, in the eyes of these religious leaders, Jesus mixed the insiders and the outsiders together, treating both the sinners and the good religious people as equally being in need of rescue from their sin. And so the questions naturally began to arise. Is Jesus against the Old Testament? Is he only about grace and forgiveness? Or is teaching something totally new we've never heard before? Is Jesus now maybe starting a new dispensation of grace that does away with the Old Testament law? And so Jesus addresses all those questions here. and, And as he does so, he gives us a working theology of how the Old and New Testaments relate to one another. See, is Jesus here abolishing the law with a new religion of grace? Or is he merely expounding on the continuing law with all of these illustrations and parables and stories? Or is he giving us something entirely new? And listen, entire denominations are divided today over the answers to these very questions. And so it's very important for us to understand this. Now, before we try to understand everything that Jesus is saying here, let's just define our terms for a little bit. When Jesus is talking about the law here, he's referring to the entire Old Testament. Right, which is important for us to understand because once we get to verse 21 all the way through the next several chapters, he's only dealing with one aspect of the law, the moral law. But at this point, Jesus is referring to the entire uh, Old Testament law, which included the moral law, right, which were the ongoing ethical commands of God, things like the 10 commandments. And then you had the judicial law or the civil law, laws that governed the nation of Israel, and gave them ways of behaving and relating. And then you had the ceremonial laws that had to do with the sacrificial system and all the rituals for worship of the community. And Jesus here says that he has come to fulfill all of them. Now we'll get to the word fulfill and define that one in a minute. But for now, what I want us to deal with is, do we have to keep all of these laws today? Do we have to keep any of these laws? today? Are we under any obligation whatsoever? And, and of course very few people would say that we no longer have to keep the moral law. Even the secular world values the wisdom that comes from the Ten Commandments. And you know, people say of course we should love our neighbors ourselves. <clears throat> but what about the civil laws? I mean certainly we don't keep those because they were for the nation of Israel and we're not Israelites. And of course we don't offer um, sacrifices anymore Uh, because we believe that Jesus was the final sacrifice that ended the need for any more sacrifices. And so the the question naturally arises, does that mean that we just throw all those laws away? Are there portions of the Bible that do not apply to us sitting here today? Well, not so fast, (laughs) because I think the answer to that is both yes and no. No, we don't have to keep any of those specific ceremonial or civil laws anymore. But yes, we do have to listen to them uh, because they still do apply to us. Well, how? (laughs) Let me explain this a little bit. Let let me just give you an example. Take the example of the Old Testament laws about weaving two kinds of cloth together or about uh, plowing with two different kinds of animals. Uh, Besides the obvious, plowing with a big ox and a little, you know, colt, you're gonna go in circles. you know, there were some practical reasons for that, but, but nobody today would say that wearing a, a blended weave knit shirt is a sin, right? We, if so, we're probably all sinners here this morning. But what was the point behind that law? See, it was a picture that was pointing to a deeper principle. It was a whole lifestyle for them that the Apostle Paul was able to summarize in a single verse, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now listen, I want you to think about this for a minute. Here's the nature of how prophecy works. Frankly, here's the nature of how talking about anything in the future, anything that's unknown, works. When, when you're talking to somebody about something that's yet to come, more often than not, you have to paint elaborate pictures in order to depict it for them. And let me just give you a practical example outside of Uh, theology. Uh, Let's say for example I'm trying to give you directions uh, to a place that you've never been before and if I do that I'm going to give you an awful lot more uh, picturesque detail. I'm going to tell you about landmarks along the way, this great big red barn, you'll see it on your left. I'll talk about the gas station on the right and this big ugly sign. I'll give you all of these details and pointers so that you can be prepared to know where you're going. But If I'm merely reminding you of a place that you've been a few times, it just takes a simple reminder, right? You know, it's just, it's on Maple Street just down from the Miller's. Oh yeah, yeah, I remember that. And see what the old, what for the Old Testament people was a living, breathing principle, do not be unequally yoked uh, with unbelievers. It embodied a whole lifestyle. Whereas for New Testament believers who don't need the rule anymore because Jesus has come, and so now all Paul has to say is, and guys, you remember this. Now, just don't forget it. When you yoke yourself together with an unbeliever, it's going to lead to trouble for you. Right? Just don't do it. Don't marry an unbeliever. Don't ethically bind yourself to an unbeliever in business. And so though the particular law of weaving two kinds of cloth together does not apply to us anymore, what the law pointed to still does. And, and, and you can see this as well in things like uh, the Passover, for example. You know, we're not obligated to keep the Passover in that we've got to all go out and kill a lamb and spread blood across our doorposts. We don't practice that anymore. But we do have to hang on to what it teaches, that only the blood of Jesus can cover and protect us from the angel of death. And, and listen, even today, you and I still live under uh, mere pictures of things that we can't yet understand. I mean, think about how does the Bible talk about heaven and hell? You notice that in the Bible, it always uses the word like. It's like a lake of fire, but you're never going to get burned up. So it's only like it. It's like transparent streets of gold. Well, how can you have gold that's transparent? Well, it's only like it, right? And it's always like these things because all the Bible can do is try to paint pictures for us of something we can't yet comprehend. And that's why these, what these laws are always doing, Right? So we don't have to obey the law of the civil law or the ceremonial law but we do have to listen to and obey and we can even preach from the ceremonial laws because of what they pointed to. They still apply to us. And so when Jesus says here that he's fulfilling the law completely, he's talking about every one of these aspects. And since he obeyed In your place, for you, it means that every detail of the law has been completely fulfilled by you as well, legally in God's eyes. You are as righteous and as holy and as perfect before the eyes of God as if you had obeyed every one of those moral laws, every one of those civil laws, every one of those ceremonial laws, down to the most minute detail. Now, let's move on to our second term here and define prophets. It won't take as much detail. He says he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. And, and of course, any time the Bible says the law and the prophets, it's summary language, it's code language, if you will, for the Old Testament. That's how the Jews referred to the Old Testament. Now, think about who the prophets were. See, their, their job was to, first of all, teach uh, the law of God and call God's people to obey it. And then secondly, to remind them that all the problems that they have are coming because of their refusal to live according to that law. And in other words, if you think about it, the job of a prophet was to call people to a level of obedience that frankly was not possible, which in and of itself was a reminder and a promise of the coming Messiah, who would one day come and keep the law for them. And and just lest you think they didn't quite understand that, even. Even King David realized this when he said, though it is required of me to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices, I know that's not what you really want. What you're really after is my heart. And, 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 I, and I recognize that I need a rescuer to come and deliver me. And, and, and then we get to this often misunderstood term, fulfill. That's probably the key term here. And let's define that one for a moment because, listen, I gotta be honest, to, To ears that love to hear that we are freed from any obligation. When we hear Jesus say, I've come to fulfill the law, we naturally want to hear what he's saying. Hey, it's now gone. We're free. It's all grace now. It's all forgiveness. There are no rules left anymore. But that's not what the term fulfilled always means. I mean clearly in this context it can't mean that because notice what jesus goes on to warn us against in verse 19. therefore anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven but whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven so obviously he's not saying the law is done away with he says it's incredibly important because when he's when he's using the word fulfill here it doesn't mean to complete or or it's finished, as if we move on now, but it literally means that he gave full obedience to it, that he carried out everything that it commanded. And so with all of those terms and that context behind us, what is it that Jesus is teaching us here? And I think there's two basic things that he's telling us. First of all, He tells us in verse 18, he says, truly I tell you. In other words, I'm not kidding, guys. This is the absolute truth. And what he's saying is that God's law is absolute. And it can never be changed. It can never be modified. You can't update it to meet with the times. See, he's saying that the law of God is not merely some cultural expression of God's character that doesn't fully apply to us modern Western people. Or or maybe we have the freedom to reapply it to our own cultural context. No, in fact, he goes on to say, not until heaven and earth pass away will this law lose its significance. He says not a jot or a tittle. In in our vernacular, we might say not a comma or a period, uh, not the smallest letter or the smallest marking of the smallest letter is gonna pass away. Everything that the law and the prophets spoke will come to pass down to the smallest detail. And then secondly, not only is he saying that it's never gonna change, but in verse 17, he says, in light of that, of course, I've not come to uh, destroy the law. I've not come to modify the law. I've not come to stop any portion of God's law because every story, every law, every principle, everything found in the Old Testament finds all of its fulfillment in me. And so Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. Well, how? There's so many examples. Remember the two um, of Jesus' disciples were sadly walking along the road to Emmaus right after Jesus' death and before his resurrection. And and they were just heartbroken because they said, you know, we thought Jesus was the one. We, We thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. And, of course, Jesus comes alongside them, and they have no idea who he was. And he says this to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Man, I would love to have heard that conversation because he was showing them how everything in the Bible was always about him, right? So of course it can't be done away with because it's all about Jesus. I mean, think about this. Jesus was the perfect Noah who saved us from the real flood of God's wrath. Jesus was the perfect Joseph who endures unjust suffering in order to save his people from death. Jesus is the perfect Moses who leads his people out of the slavery of sin through the sacrifice of the lamb and onto the promised land. Jesus is the perfect David, leading his people as the true and just king. And on and on and on it goes. The whole Bible is about Jesus. All of the Everything in the Old Testament pictures and depicts for us Jesus' nature, Jesus' character, everything about who he is. And not only that, if you look at Jesus' teaching, all throughout his ministry, he quotes nearly every portion of the Old Testament as authoritative. When he says things like, this is what God said to you people... And he's quoting the Old Testament. And so, see, to dismiss any portion of the Old Testament as fantasy or embellishment or or even just made-up stories to get a point across, you can believe that if you want to, but not without calling Jesus a liar and throwing away everything that he taught. Not without missing everything that that it was telling us about Jesus. In other words, you can't say, I love the teachings of Jesus, but I don't like this stuff. Well, you you can't have it both ways. You know, did God really create the world by the breath of his mouth? Was there a literal Garden of Eden with a real Adam and Eve? Or are they merely stories, principles that are there to teach us a lesson? And according to Jesus, they are authoritative and they're true. They actually happened. Everything in the Old Testament is the authoritative word of God. And everything in the Old Testament will be fulfilled as he promised, down to the smallest detail imaginable. And so likewise, you could go on to look at the prophets. If you want to dismiss anything that the prophets had to say as being merely poetry or, or words to inspire God's people, that contradicts the very claims of Jesus. Listen, you cannot simply dismiss the Old Testament as being old it's not for me. It's not for the New Testament church. It doesn't apply to, any, to us anymore today without dismissing Jesus himself. And see, what this means is that we cannot take the Bible to be merely a book of moral principles. And then now the details are up to you to decide how that you want to apply it. We are not given the luxury of trying to read our own current cultural enlightenment into the outdated history of an ancient nation. I mean, you can do that if you want to, but again, it's to call Jesus a liar. And you have to throw out everything that he says. Listen, the Bible doesn't change just because culture does. Homosexuality is still a sin, even though in our culture it's very popular. Adultery, frankly, any sex outside of marriage is still a sin. Any racial or ethnic discrimination is still a sin. Abortion is still a sin. Taking advantage of the poor and the powerless is still a sin. Any lust even hidden within your heart that you don't act upon is still a sin. Being angry with another person, even quietly in your own heart, still a sin. Any belief that life can be had apart from God is still a sin. Any thought that God will accept me if I just try my best, still a lie. Any belief that I can be sorry enough and committed enough to make God happy with me is still a sin because the Bible never changes. And Jesus' attitude here was, I have come to obey it completely for you. And therefore, Jesus says that our attitude toward the law needs to be, okay, I'm going to obey it fully too. And of course, that's what grace is for because, listen, we don't have to obey the law perfectly in order to find favor with God. Jesus already did that for us. Rather, we obey it because we have favor with God because we want to be like Jesus. Listen, the law is a reflection of the character of God who made us and who loves us. And therefore the law is a picture of everything that God is in the process of transforming us into. So of course we obey the law. We have to obey the law, not to be accepted, not to be loved, not to get our prayers answered, not to get into heaven. Jesus did all that for us already, but we obey the law in order that we might become more and more what God has already declared us to be legally because now our new hearts want to. See, the legalist is content to say, yeah, you better obey whether you want to or not. And and, and the, the method that you use is to coerce everybody into living right. Force your character to change. Use guilt and shame and the fear of losing your testimony to the watching world. Use whatever it takes to get your character in line but the christian says you obey because your new heart wants to and if your new heart doesn't want to you need to find out what's keeping you from wanting to and repent of that see you're already forgiven for it whatever you're going to find but you'll never be able to enjoy walking into the new life that god has called you to and is making for you eternally in heaven unless you obey more and more So Jesus says, I have obeyed fully. Now, you guys do the same. But then secondly, we said there's two major principles that Jesus gave here. First, he says, everything I'm about to say is in total agreement with the Old Testament. But now finally, everything that he's about to say is in utter contrast and complete disagreement with the religious teachings of the Pharisees. And see, what was the essence of the religion of the Pharisees? you know, look at Bristol, you know, look at the Bible Belt, that's us, because it was a religion that says, yeah, believe in God, honor God with your life, obey God with everything that you've got, and it was the real God of the Bible, they they were not worshipping the wrong God, and they believed that by doing so, you will be able to find more favor with God, so it was a religion that took everything that the Bible said, and it focused it all on you and your responsibility, It was a religion that tried to use being a good person and obeying all the rules and the commands of God as a way of uh, staying out of the big sins, as a way to try to justify yourself, to prove yourself worthy of God, to make yourself acceptable before both God and man. And listen, here's where it's possible to actually deny God by obeying God. You ever think about that? You can actually deny God by obeying him because it denies what the law actually says. And we'll get into a whole lot more detail in the weeks ahead. But see, if your view of the law is that by keeping it, I can be saved, that by keeping it, God is more likely to answer my prayers today, that by keeping it, God is going to let me into heaven, <laughs> listen, that's the that's the general religion of the Bible Belt. That, that's the religion of Bristol. You know, often I, you know, if you ask people around here, are you a Christian, the typical response is going to be, well, you know, I'm working on it, right, I'm doing my best, I'm trying to live right, that is not Christianity, that is moralism, and it completely ignores the fact that the law was intended to drive us to despair, so that we would look outside of ourselves for rescue. See, the law was intended to drive us to Jesus. See, because the, because the law is a reflection of God, it's a good thing. You know, and as creatures who were designed by this God, we have to obey it. It's just part of our DNA. It's how he's made us. You know, God didn't just randomly make up a bunch of laws to try to trip us up. Let's see if I can get these guys. That's not why God created the law. He created the law because it's a, it's a reflection of who he is. It's his image. It's his character but it's also because we're made in his image, a picture of the character that we were designed to live. But because it's only a reflection of God that our sin is tainted, we're not capable of keeping it anymore. And Jesus will move on from here to just begin to explode the law over the next several chapters. When he says that, you know, it applies not just to the worst case letter of the law scenarios. You know, don't, don't commit first degree murder in some really nasty way. He said, no, it it applies to even the intent behind the law, which is never to be angry with another person. See, once you've broken the purpose that lies behind the command, you might as well have done it in God's eyes. And he goes on and on, chapter after chapter, which we will get to in detail, just exposing our hearts and showing us that the law is so pervasive that nobody can keep it, which is why we need a savior. Now, we'll get there, Listen, how do we understand all of this together? If God still commands us to obey his laws, and yet he forgives us when we don't, because Jesus kept them for us, how does all this work together? And this is where the good news of the gospel comes into play, because again, the legalist will say, you must obey, but God forgives you if you're really sorry which means you never know if you've obeyed enough and you never know if you've been sorry enough. So you're stuck in this religious limbo of living in constant fear of judgment and condemnation, enslaved by guilt and shame, you can't break free of it. But the gospel says that now that Jesus has fully kept the law for you so that it's as legally true of you as it is of Jesus, now you can just work on obeying it without any fear of rejection. See, Jesus says, of course you work at obeying me, and you work hard, you work with all of your might and all of your strength, trying to keep the, the letter of the law down to the smallest detail, because that's now your new nature. And it's the nature of the God that, that loves you and has rescued you. So of course you will obey it. It's what God is transforming you into so that one day it'll actually be true of you in reality, in heaven. This is where you're headed. And of course you're going to fail at keeping it. And that's okay. Because your acceptance, God says, before me is not based on anything that you do. It's based on what Jesus did. He kept it for you. But now I long to obey it. I want to obey it. I want to pursue God with all of my heart because I love him. And see, all that grace does is it frees us from the guilt of falling short, but it never frees us from the obligation to keep it and to obey it. Grace frees us from the condemnation of the law, but not from the obligation to walk under it. And so when you hear Jesus say, I have come to fulfill the law, you need to hear two things. First of all, that Jesus has obeyed every aspect of the law down to its most minute detail which means that in God's eyes, legally, you have obeyed every aspect of the law yourself down to its most minute detail. You you are that perfect. You are that holy. You are that righteous. But then secondly, also here, that Jesus has obeyed the law so that you are now free to work on obeying it experientially without any risk of judgment or disappointment or frustration on God's part when you fail at it. You are free to pursue holiness. You're free to work hard at becoming more and more like Jesus without all the stress of feeling like I need to keep up or I need to hide when I fail. Listen, the law is all about Jesus. And he's come and he's kept it perfectly for you so that you could now return to the law and the ways that it reflects the God that we love and the person that he's transforming us into and say along with David, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it day and night. Blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we confess that um, we are lawbreakers, but we also confess that we like to redeem ourselves. We like to prove that I'm not as bad as other people, or I'm not as bad as I used to be, or we we try to measure our growth against some other metric uh, because we just don't believe in grace. We we just can't fathom the fact that you have done everything for us, and and in moments when we feel that way, there's this feeling of release from, well, I don't have to obey anymore, and, and yet we still do have to obey, and it gets so confusing unless we understand the gospel that you have obeyed perfectly in order that we might obey and enjoy becoming what you've declared us to be. Lord, teach us what it means to walk in holiness and to pursue righteousness. Help for us to be people who long uh, to pursue after uh, a life of holiness and purity so that we become more and more like Jesus. We become more and more like the one that you are transforming us into being. We pray this in Jesus' name.